This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 141. My name is Arvind. Join me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. We're coming to you uh, a couple weeks delayed on account of me having to, to move uh, on, on Sunday. I'm now all relatively settled where, uh, in, my, in my, new, my new abode. And yeah, hopefully regularly scheduled programming will continue. Coming to you live from sunny New Jersey, the exotic mm. and festive shores. It actually is sunny right now here. Is it? Yeah, actually, it's gross out in Toronto, so you've won up me there. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so our podcast is now multinational. It's mm. pretty wild. And uh, because the season is now winding down-ish, and the Leafs are extremely likely to finish first, so we're just kind of waiting for the Winnipeg Jets and the Montreal Canadiens to resolve amongst themselves who is going to play us. They're in a good old-fashioned suck-off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, the Jets should have cruised uh, all the way to the third seed, at least, yeah. if not the me, second. Me, and they me, were just me like, saying that is definitely not going to burn us in two weeks. No way. I, yeah, you know, we kept saying, like, we'd probably prefer to play, play Winnipeg, and they seem like a bit of a paper tiger, and if you look at their underlying numbers, they're bad. And I still believe all of that, but now I'm terrified that we're going to play them, and Hellebuck is just going to stone us cold. And mm. we're going to look really stupid when we lose in five games. However, that's a problem for a future podcast. Yes. Today's podcast is about the NHL awards. Everybody loves awards, trophies, <laughs> prizes, medals, and like anyone else, we thought we would weigh in with our best perspective on five of these. Um, we didn't do the Jack Adams or the Best GM Award because those are kind of random and subject to variance. To a huge extent, the Jack Adams Award is basically who surprised us. I'll throw out a pick for you if you want. Mine is Joel Quenville, partly because I know he's a really good coach and partly because Florida keeps doing pretty well despite playing combinations of players I would not think would work. Yeah, I think Quenville or Brindamore are, are, good, mm. are good bets. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, Jared Bednar has evidently done a good job because Colorado is really good. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to get the credit for it because we, we're like, oh, his roster is really good. But, you know, it's, it's, it's always, you always get a chicken and egg thing with this, with the Jack Adams, which is partially why we're not doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I think you can make a tenable case for Sheldon Keefe if you're so inclined. You know, they've done well. I'm not saying I would give it to him, but that's the thing about the Jack Adams is any given year, you can give it to nine different coaches. Uh, as for best GM, same sort of issue. I think the issue with best GM is more time frame. Right. Because if you apply it to only this year, it always ends up being kind of stupid because most GM moves take longer to bear fruit. And if you apply it over a wider time frame, you have to specify, okay, what counts for this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd probably say Joe Sackick, speaking of the Colorado Avalanche. Like, they've just made a lot of really good moves that have set them up for success, and they're a yeah. terrifying team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to try and go in depth on the players. And so, are we ready to start with the Hart Trophy? Yeah. Yes. Oh, and the... sorry, one one note we should yep. make. Mm-hmm. Um, Fulman and I actually made our lists completely independently of one another. We did not talk about it with one another at all. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, our picks are incredibly similar, regardless of that fact. <laughs> we try so hard to, like, gin up some arguments here. And you know what? We'll, we'll disagree on a couple of things, but yes. we do align a little bit. So the Hart Trophy for the player adjudged most valuable to his team. Arvind, your picks. Um, so we, we did a ballot of three for each, which I think is not how the actual NHL awards are, are, put, are you know, voted on. But whatever, this is our show. Um, mine were in order. Connor McDavid of the... Uh, Edmonton Oilers, Nathan McKinnon of the Colorado Avalanche, and Austin Matthews of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had McDavid, Matthews second, and then McKinnon third. Right. I think these are the three that are going to finish in the top three. And I think rightly so. Like, if you ask me who are the best three players in the world, this is my list now. And... There are other names I would entertain as being in the conversation, but I feel pretty good about it being these three guys, honestly. I really do. Y- you know, I- I'd listen on Artemi Panarin, uh, maybe Sidney Crosby as sort of a legacy pick who's still 
pretty impressive. But these are the guys. And we talked about the heart earlier this year, and I think that the gap between McDavid and the other two was smaller to start the season based on what we knew. This year, Connor McDavid has separated himself again. He's been too good to really be denied. He's producing at a level that is just ridiculous for anyone not surnamed Crosby, Lemieux, Gretzky at their absolute peak. And yeah, he's doing it in the North Division, which, you know, has some pretty shitty defenses. But still, he's doing it, and he's doing it really well. Uh, I think Connor McDavid is at a level of dominance right now where you can't really argue with him for the best player in the world. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's there's almost not a lot to say here. I think McDavid's going to run away with it, and he will have deserved to. Uh, his point totals are eye-popping. Mm-hmm. We don't really care that much about point totals on this podcast, but you know, even still, it's it's very impressive what he's done. Um, but the point totals aren't really lying at all here, right? McDavid is has been just a, a singularly dominant offensive force this season. And, you know, the vast majority of his, almost all of his value is, you know, in the offensive side of it. Uh, his defensive game has improved to be, at least this year, it looks around average. But when you're the best offensive player in the world, that's more than enough to let you run away with the Hart Trophy. Exactly. I do think that Connor McDavid is probably not that, great defensively per se, but I think what happens with the very best offensive players, and I think this is true to some extent of McKinnon too, is you're so good at offense, at operating in the offensive zone, at transition, at moving the play in the right direction, that you're good at defense as a byproduct of that. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily a great in-zone defensive player. You're just not there very often. And that's fine, because that still means you're not getting scored on all that often. This is kind of nitpicking, to be clear, because McDavid is at a level now where he's gone absolutely supernova. And so the result has been just that he's going to run away with this trophy. I think McKinnon and Matthews is more interesting, and you know we did have them in reverse order. Um, I think they're close, and I think yes. that you can argue 2-3 either way. Right. I, I, certainly, I certainly wouldn't... Um... You know, begrudge anyone who had Matthews too, for example. Uh, the main reason I put McKinnon second is, is that his... I guess I want to reward him in some sense for being, I think, the best player on a team that looks like, you know, really the, the best team in the league this year. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very impressive to take a team from, you know, good to great to that juggernaut status. And the Avs have been so dominant really everywhere except goaltending this year which i'm not going to pin on nathan mckinnon at all Mm -hmm. so you know that that's what it kind of boils down to for me in terms of what elevates him above matthews um it's you know as as you said as you alluded to it's not a runaway for either one for a second but Mm -hmm. i yeah I, i think that's that's kind of my thinking for for putting mckinnon there yeah, I, I do think that there's a, a real case to just say, look, he's the best player on the best team. Mm-hmm. And that goes a long way. And the Avs, by any way you can measure it, are obscenely dominant. In fact, and neither, neither of us had him on our Selkie ballots, a little spoiler alert, but his results are so good that some ways you would measure for the Selkie, he just happens to be dominating those statistics too, like goals against. He looks great because, again... He controls play so much that he's just in the offensive zone the whole time. That's kind of incredible. And so a lot of credit is due him for for how great he's been. It's kind of crazy what a leap he took. You know, after a couple years where he was considered a modestly underwhelming first overall pick, maybe. Because he wasn't finishing at anything like a normal rate. And now he's just ridiculous uh, Mm -hmm. to go with a huge speed level. Um... Matthews, you all know Matthews, you love Matthews, so do we. I rewarded him for scoring a fuck ton of goals. Yep. And, you know, (laughs) that's sometimes you don't overthink it. He's probably the best goal scorer on the planet right now. The best goal scorer of all time, I still think, is Alex Ovechkin. But I think Matthews has asserted that, as of this instant, he's the guy. I, I would 
take no one ahead of him in terms of you need someone to score a goal right now. He's just yeah. ridiculous. And he's in, you know, this is he's this is a not a weak rocket winner, you know. Um, you know, there, there was some consternation on Twitter this year about people overstating how historical what Matthews is doing is, which is fair because, you know, that happens to any any leaf. Um, what we can say is that his goal scoring peak right now is, you know, it's not far off. It's not dissimilar to what Ovechkin did in his prime, what Stamkos did in his prime. Yes. And that's those are two of the best. I mean, Ovechkin has a credible case as the best goal scorer ever. Stamkos, you know, arguably would have contended for, you know, being in the top five had he not had, you know, a really unfortunate series of injuries. Peak Stamkos, you know, this is an aside, peak Stamkos was unfair. People don't seem to recognize how insane it was that he was a 60-goal scorer in the season that he was. And, you know, had surrounding seasons of that caliber or close to it. He was monstrous. He had an Ovechkin-esque one-timer. And shit's ridiculous, man. But that's the company Matthews is keeping now. Is he's in a conversation with the very best goal scorers of this century. And again, he's not just winning the Rocket Richard right now. He's running away with it. He's up eight goals with uh, four or five games left. On McDavid, who we just mentioned, is killing shit in his own right. So... Having missed a few games, too. Yeah, like... It's just unbelievable, and it's been a joy to watch him because he's one of those players right now for the Leafs where when he steps on, anything can happen. He is such a threat. He's so good at stick handling. It can find spaces. He's so good at protecting the puck, and he's such a good shooter. Uh, I really can't say enough about it. I think he's going to turn out to have been the best player to wear the Toronto Maple Leaf uh, by the time that he's done. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think that that's... Fun. There's probably not a lot of mystery about the Hart Trophy. You know, yeah. like, almost everyone is going to have these three names, or maybe they'll right. have a homer pick in third. I but, should mention, like, these are the guys. I should mention some of the guys who sure. I considered for, mm-hmm. for the down-ballot spots. Um, Patrice Bergeron, as usual, absolutely insane on-ice goal numbers this year. Um, of course, you know, the, the inevitable thing with anyone on that Boston top line is that, like, you, you you use the other two to discredit whoever you're talking about, no matter who it is, <laughs> yeah. right? It's a, and it, which makes no sense, obviously, in a logical in a logical way. But um, you know, you, you one thing you do have to acknowledge is that Patrice Bergeron, you know, has the best quality of line mates in the world, and I mean, so does Brad Marchand, and so does David Pasternak, right? Because what we see now, typically, at least with these high end players, a lot of the times what we see are, are pairings, right? That's how the Leafs often structure their um their top lines you have um mckinnon rantanen and landeskog landeskog's a very good player but he's not on the tier of, of rantanen or mckinnon mm-hmm. uh you have when mcdavid and dry are together obviously that's a power duo um so you know you do have to kind of knock bergeron down a little bit for having you know the best quality of line mates possible you know you can't it's not really knocking him down so much as you can't give him full credit for the insane on ice goal numbers that he gets right because he plays with two of the better shooters in the league um, so, yeah, but, you know, Bergeron is phenomenal, as usual, right? Uh, kind of the same old Patrice Bergeron seasons. He's 95 years old, and he probably doesn't even have a working lung anymore, but he's still very good. Uh, Rantanen, who I mentioned earlier, could get some votes. He's had an absurd shooting year. I think Evolving Hockey's uh, wins above replacement model actually rates him above McKinnon, which, you know, I don't fully buy. Um, but he's had that tier of season. Uh, Alexander Barkov has had a really, really strong year, and he's probably going to win the Selkie, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just barely doesn't make the cut for me for the heart. Yeah, I, like, I think these are all guys who are having great seasons, and you know we will mention them later uh, in a couple of cases. It's just right now we're looking at players who can basically carry a team. And in the case of McKinnon and Matthews, they don't necessarily have to, to the same extent that McDavid does. But these are the the top three players in the world. And so I think the, the Hart Trophy in terms of comparing who the best players are and who the best player or the most valuable player is this season, some years there's a bit of a discrepancy and there's a question of how to accommodate that. This year it's easy. I think it's the same three names. 
Uh, do we want to move on to the Selkie where there's sure somewhat more to bicker about? So yeah, uh, do you, you can go ahead and uh, I'll go after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the Selkie is always really tricky, and mm. I guess the way similar to the heart, there's kind of a big definitional argument you can make about the Selkie. I think the term, the, 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 what the award states is the forward who best excels in the defensive aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, you can interpret that to mean many things. You can interpret that to mean um, the forward who does the most to help their team's defense. Defense only. We don't care about offense at all. Like, offenses should be completely agnostic. What voters have tended to do this year um, is look at it more as what's the best offensive player who is also pretty good defensively? Mm. Right? Um, you need to have like a certain level of offense to like be in the conversation, more or less. And um, Shayna Goldman, I believe her name is, she's a Rangers r- uh, writer and blogger who does stuff for The Athletic as well. Um, she wrote a very nice piece about kind of what it means to win the Selkie. Right, and what goes into it from a voter's perspective and kind of the varying uh, ways that we judge forwards' defense. Do you care about shorthanded play? Do you care about quality of competition? Uh, How much does offense factor in? All that sort of thing. So all this is to say there are hundreds of permutations for this award that I would not be mad at. Like, one thing I'll definitely say about this, I, I, I'm not wedded to my opinions on the Selkie. Mm-hmm. But my top three are uh, Philip Deneau of the Montreal Canadiens, Joel Erickson Eck of the uh, Minnesota Wild, and Alexander Barkov of the Florida Panthers. So mine were Barkov first, Deneau second, and then I had our old friend and nemesis, Patrice Bergeron, third. Mm-hmm. And... It, it is tricky. So this is the beginning of something that's going to show up also in my Norris vote and to some extent my Vesna. I do care about the overall track record of these players. And this is not something that a lot of people necessarily like. They say, okay, the award is for this season. You're trying to award who was the best defensive forward this season. And that's fair, but... A lot of defensive metrics will tend to toss up the occasional guy who you think, geez, really him? And uh, I'm indebted to friend of the pod, Kevin, uh, Sabres fan, for this observation. Lately, it seemed to be a lot of guys who play in the middle six for the Colorado Avalanche for whatever reason. Uh, Alex Kerfoot did it for a bit. Valerie Nishushkin, Logan O'Connor this year. I got not, not unrelatedly, a lot of stats people have like four Avs defensemen in the top of uh, in their in their Norris balance yes. too. So like something, it's weird, right? That has to be acknowledged to some degree. Yes, they're a juggernaut. Are we saying that they have, you know, the second best forward in the world, three of the five best defensemen, and three of the or two and two or three of the best defensive forwards? then they really ought to be a juggernaut. They ought to beat Team Canada. <laughs> That's kind of a crazy thing to contemplate. And right. so, like it, it, it yeah. seems at some point we're over, we might be double-counting or over-counting. Right. And defense is still, I think, harder to measure and harder to separate out. That doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't mean that the people who do regression analysis and the like aren't doing valuable work. But from where I'm sitting, where I'm trying to marry the numbers with my own personal version of common sense to get to an answer that I think is legit. I do look at the players who are considered really good defensively or who have track records of putting up really strong results. And so I look at someone like Barkov, who has a good track record, doesn't have maybe the best isolated defensive track record, but is respected as good at this and is dominating his minutes. That carries weight with me. And... I don't think it's illegitimate to bring in that long-term credibility to say, like, look, this is a player that we know is pretty good at this. In a given year, someone might be showing better results on this particular line on the bar graph, but we know this guy belongs in the conversation. That's how I feel about Barkov. And I am importing a certain level of offense into it. That's why I'm giving him the edge over to know. 
maybe it's also just that I don't want to give any more awards to a Montreal Canadian than I can avoid. Uh, Arvin is more intellectually honest than I am because I'm just trying not to give it to Deneau. <laughs> um, but Deneau does belong in this conversation. And he is a, a special player who has done what he's doing for a, a long time. He gets knocked for his lack of offense, which comes and goes and is at times pretty decent 5v5, but he's not really great and he's not uh, a great power play producer. But he goes against top lines and wins his minutes handily. Yeah. And so he's a bit of an unconventional top six center in that respect. But he's done it long, he's done it long enough that I buy that it's for real. And even though the Montreal Canadiens always dominate their metrics, again... When Philip Deneau is on, they tend to win those minutes pretty handily. You can win with Philip Deneau playing a big role for your team, and he'll help. Um, and then Peace Patrice Bergeron is on there because he scares me. I'm still more afraid of Marchand, Bergeron, and Pasternak as a line than any other line in the world. I'm glad we don't have to play them for at least two rounds. And I just trust that he belongs here because he has been so good for so long. It's a bit of a legacy pick, but I I do think that he's legitimately one of the greatest players I've ever seen. Yeah, he's absurdly good. There's there's a very strong case for Bergeron uh, this year, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm, right? like, I'm using his, his long-term impact and his reputation and all of those things to kind of nudge him out of the, the pack of the best defensive players, but he belongs there to begin with on the numbers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I'd probably have Bergeron fourth. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wouldn't quibble with having him third, second, or first. He, he's, he's very good. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, everyone knows how good Patrice Bergeron is. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I, I still think, in a lot of cases, people don't realize that like, he's had a Hall of Fame career, and it's not close. Like he's going to be a a well above average Hall of Famer. Yes. You, you can he, say, like, of who are the greatest defensive forwards of the 21st century? Datsuk, Bergeron. Those are the top two, for my money. Like, he belongs in a conversation with Pavel Datsuk. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, I know that that... I, I, like, I, I think everyone recognizes what a great defensive player he is. He's obviously won the Selkie a bunch already. But, like, he's insane. <laughs> like and to be as good as he still is at the age that he currently is is ridiculous um because i honestly was sort of not to wish any ill on the man but i was hoping for a gentle age-related decline to make the bruins a bit less intimidating they've been up and down this year i think mostly because their defense is still kind of iffy but he has still been getting it done for like the last four years i feel we've been saying you know, well, you know, that top line's not going to be this good forever. Boston should really capitalize on it. And they've just still been this good. It, yeah, like, it doesn't matter. He's found the Philosopher's Stone or something. He's just going to keep on trucking until he's 45 fucking years old, and it'll drive me crazy. But yeah. I do respect him. He's incredible. So Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Um, I should talk a bit about Barkov. Yeah, I, you alluded to this earlier. His um, like def- isolated defensive stats have never really been great historically um and this year they're not amazing either but his on ice numbers are absolutely ridiculous as you said he's um you know winning his minutes handily and of course this is alexander barkov he's playing big minutes he's playing like 21 minutes a night at even strength or whatever and that matters when you compare to say philip Deneau, who plays who plays less mm-hmm. right um so i think on that basis it's justifiable to to put barkov there especially because i think a lot of the regression models in this single year are attributing that strong defensive performance to players like Carter Verhage and Mackenzie Weger, who I can buy are good, but this kind of goes back to your point on um, kind of on taking history into account. Mm-hmm. We know Barkov is an elite player. You know, even if that wasn't defensively before, it he, he's always been you know a solid enough play driver, and he's always had that rep. He has that pedigree you can very easily convince yourself that, like, okay, yes, the regression models say that Carter Verhage is the driver here. But my eye test and what I know of Alexander Barkov suggests to me that he's actually doing a lot of this too. And it, it, it's, you know, he has a small sample, a relatively small sample away from Verhage. Mm-hmm. So 
I think I think what your kind of what your history dependent voting does, I'd say it prevents you from looking like an idiot in the sense of you're not going to fall into the trap of like, wow, remember when I voted Yasperi Kotkaniemi second for the Selkie? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's quite valid. It's like a first do no harm approach to awards voting. Yeah, it it is with an eye towards history. And full disclosure, I do sort of a similar thing with the top twenty five under twenty five, where we mm-hmm. rank the prospects in the Leaf system. I favor the guys who I know or perceive as closer to the NHL over the moonshots, even though the moonshots have this outside chance of becoming someone really effective. But they probably won't. Whereas the guys who show up in the NHL already are probably going to be something. And I do think that a lot of NHL voters take this approach. Like, if you look at who's won the Selkie over the past decade. Couturier, Kopitar twice, Bergeron four times, Ryan O'Reilly, Jonathan Taze, Ryan Kessler. All of those names are extremely credible in the light of history. And... I think that that's a big factor for a lot of voters. And when you're voting for an award that, as much as anything, is about legacy, is about the long-term impact, it, it makes a certain amount of sense to go back to the guys who, when we look back at this era, we know are going to be names that we talk about. And, and I think this uh, this plays an even bigger role in the Noros, as we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's good. Now, I do want to say, you mentioned Joel Erickson Eck on your ballot. Yeah. And... Like, when I first did this, I had an idea of, like, who I was going to consider. And Joel Erickson Eck is a name that I knew, but I didn't know that he was in the running for this award. And so he was a bit new to me. And looking at it, he is legit. Like, he belongs in this conversation. He's not just very caught Kanyemi, who happens to have killed third-line minutes for his rookie season or whatever it is. He's playing right now as the top-line center for the Minnesota Wild. He's having great impacts. He's being effective. If he shows up on ballots this year, if he shows up higher on ballots in the future, that will make sense to me. So, like, I haven't gotten to the point where I'm putting him in yet, but he's not, you know, sort of a stat fluke, the way that I alluded to some other players being. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. We should also mention that, at least for, for me, I'm not really overly waiting, um, having to play on the, on the penalty kill. I mean, as it turns out, all the guys on my list do play on mm-hmm. the penalty kill, and... If you are, if you really don't care about that at all, you can, you know, also get guys like Joe Pavelski, um, Nathan McKinnon, as you talked about earlier, and even Austin Matthews as a really like dark horse, you know, low ballot uh, answer. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, playing on the penalty goal is a plus, but it's not, it's not required. But I do think that, I do think that the the people we have here are. Um, also, you know, they have a very credible case just to even strength alone. Yeah. The, the other thing is, is that we all picked centers. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the tradition for this award. It's very rare that it goes to a winger. If you do include wingers in this sort of thing, and you believe that they really can have a major impact, Mitch Marner gets to the edge of the conversation. At least he becomes interesting enough to talk about, which is cool. He does kill penalties. He has great impacts. I do buy that he is a good defensive winger. I'm not sure that I buy that you have the same defensive impact from the wing as you do at center. You're just tasked with different responsibilities, especially in controlling the center of the ice, and I do think that it's more important for the center position. So I think that a certain amount of positional bias is relevant there, but it's something that we probably have to note because everyone seems to factor it in to some extent. Yes. Um, and Eric Snack, you mentioned this before, but... Yeah, he was the guy who surprised me. Um, and he does he plays legit minutes. He's this isn't Logan O'Connor. Yeah. I'm just very skeptical, I'll be honest, of guy who wins lots of fourth and third line minutes, and I know that this is not an argument that some of the more stat sophisticated people necessarily accept. Uh, I know Micah McCurdy has said, look, don't punish a player because his coach doesn't have the sense to play him more minutes. But I find myself thinking, look, I want the players who are in those important minutes, who are playing tough competition, who are doing well against it. And I recognize that means I'm going to filter the coach's biases through my decision, but that's kind of hockey. Coaches play a big role in what we see and what we evaluate. And so 
I, I'm maybe more cautious with this, but when someone is established as doing the tough work and doing it well for a long time, that carries a lot of weight with me. And so it, it pushed Bark off the top of my ballot and it pushed Bergeron onto the edge of it. Any more thoughts about the Selkie? Or do you want to move to the uh, No, we can move on. Okay, the Norris. Everyone has fun with the Norris. And by fun, I mean they get angry. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I, there's like 35 good candidates for the Norris this year. Um, this is really hard. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I should mention a few guys who didn't make my ballot first. Okay. Uh, Adam Pellick of the New York Islanders doesn't get a vote. And this is perhaps unfair. Literally the only po- issue I have with him is that his goalies suck when he's on the ice. Probably not his fault. Almost certainly not his fault. He's very, very good at suppressing chances, suppressing shots. You know, he, he's... You, the Islanders have surprised people over the last few years. He's a big reason why. He's very good. Um, it's just, it's a tight field. And when you're splitting hairs between him and, you know, the other guys we'll mention, it, it's hard to justify voting for a guy who, who hasn't done well in actual goals against this year, even though I recognize it's a little bit unfair. Um, the guy who I had third was, was Devin Taves, who probably isn't even another former Islander, actually, who they had to cap dump this year, mm-hmm. um, which I've heard not many people really discuss as it relates to, you know, Lou Lamorello's um, difficulties in, you know, cap compliance. Uh, but, you know, he's probably not even Colorado's best defenseman because that's Kale McCarr, <laughs> but he's missed 12 games. So that, you know, Taves has been really, really good. So... Yeah, that he, he gets, you know, third for me. We alluded to this before. Colorado has three guys you can make a case for in, in Makar, Taves, and Sam Girard. Yes, and I have a real problem with that, as we'll get to. But, yeah, it's yeah. it's just, I, I don't know how to who to attribute it to. I'm just very confused by how good Colorado is and who is responsible for it. And yeah, maybe it's unfair, but the, the top two that I ended up deciding on and kind of flipping between were Adam Fox and Dougie Hamilton. I ultimately chose Fox above Hamilton. Yes, and I went the other way around. I want to give Dougie Hamilton his Norris, and I am giving a civil medal to Adam Fox. My third place vote was, look, I want to give it to Dougie Hamilton, so let's just get to the point. Um, (laughs) This was me getting annoyed at Colorado, for reasons that I'll elaborate on. But I think Hamilton and Fox are a worthy one-two. I have a bit of a drawback about Fox and it's not really his fault. And I recognize I'm being a little unfair, but it's just enough to nudge him. Fox has played two seasons now in the NHL. In that time, he's played about a third of all of his minutes as an NHL player with Artemi Panarin. Artemi Panarin, I firmly believe never quite gets the credit that he deserves, even though everyone knows that he's good. But I keep wanting to be like, you guys know he's probably the best winger in the world, right? Like, he's insanely good. He's dominant. He's been dominant for a while. Fox plays a third of his minutes with him over over the course of his career. And his numbers with Panarin are ridiculous. They're insane. And apart from Panarin... They're down a little bit. I'm not saying that they mean that he's bad. I'm just saying, through the extremely crude device of a naive Wowie, really good with Panarin, a little less good without Panarin. Now, we have regression models that do this in a more sophisticated way than just me looking at a with or without you stat and applying my own idea of common sense. But I do think that it's possible for a player who, again, doesn't have a long track record and who has played a lot of time with an elite, elite forward to begin with, I think it's possible to buff him up a little bit in the results that he's experiencing. And so I think, obviously, Fox is benefiting from playing with Panarin. That's fine. Good players benefit with playing from with other good players. But it does make me think that he's probably getting a little bit of credit in some of the statistical modeling beyond maybe what he deserves. I mean, it's possible, but, you know, this year with Fox and without Panarin, the offense craters, right? right. And I think that's that's kind of what you would expect, right? I don't, I don't buy that as almost any NHL defenseman really, really drives offense to the degree of even like a run-of-the-mill good forward. Yeah. But the defense with Fox and without Panarin is still really, really strong. Right. 
He's and still it's not good. Like the rest of, yeah, and it's yeah. not like the rest of the Rangers are, are particularly good. I mean, he has, sure. you know, a, a lot of minutes with, say, Zibanejad and Buchnevich uh, there. Mm-hmm. But he's also playing, you know, quite a bit with a still not all that great Cabocaco. Right. And, so, and that's fair. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the degree to which I ding him for this is pretty arguable, but it shouldn't be huge. It shouldn't right. be enough he's, to he's, say he's, he's not bad. off your ballot. He's second. Yeah, he's second. Like, this is me giving the edge to Hamilton over him. I really could not find a way not to have Fox up there, though. Like, he is he is very strong, and he deserves to be in this conversation. Uh, again, some of this is... Dougie Hamilton has been among the best defensemen on the planet for a long time. And... You can say this is exactly the same logic that led voters to give the Norris to Doughty over Carlson way back when. Maybe there's a bit of it. I think Hamilton is a worthy winner in his own right this year. But I'm also factoring in, look, I am 100% confident Dougie Hamilton is awesome. At all respects of the game. The only knock on him has ever been, well, two. One is that he isn't as physical as his size suggests that he could be. And the second thing is that he goes to too many museums, which obviously I'm way too nerdy to hold against him. So, yeah, it it just makes me think, okay, maybe Fox is getting just a little bit buffed up and I want to see a little bit more before I pin the gold medal on him. But he's having a great year and he certainly belongs in this group. There's an overall problem here of, I generally think forwards impact the game more than defensemen do. That's just my opinion. And maybe that's an ingrained bias from eons of hockey, but I can't really shake it. And so I see a lot of players like Fox with Panarin, McAvoy with Bergeron and friends. And I do wonder how to split that out. And again, we have more sophisticated ways of doing it than I do it. But when it comes to trying to compare between really, really good defensemen, all of whom are worth being in this conversation... It's enough to nudge one guy up, one guy down here and there. And so the result was I had Hamilton first, Fox second. Um, the Colorado three guys thing. Okay. If I can't say with confidence who the best defenseman on the team is, that means something. And it doesn't mean that any of them are bad, but it does mean that there's probably a team effect there that I don't think is going recognized. I don't believe that there's really been a team in the history of the world that had three credible Norris contenders in the NHL, I should say. The closest I can think of was that Peak Ducks team where they had Pronger and Niedermeyer, who were both insane, and then Francois Beauchemin, who was very good. I do think that Colorado's rising tide is floating some boats there. And again, maybe I'm just biased because I think Kale McCarr was the best of the, the three. And so I don't want to give it to Taze or Gerard over Makar, who I think is better. You can see that I kind of punted on the third place, because if you put a gun to my head, I would have said Devin Taze. I'm just not super comfortable doing so. Yeah. There, it's, I think it's a pretty deep class of defensemen this year, honestly. I mean, oh, that's a good one. you mentioned McAvoy. And yeah, yeah he, like, McAvoy obviously benefits from playing with, with um, you know, that supercharged top line. But he's also just crazy good defensively. He's amazing. Right. And, like, they don't have a ton else on, on yeah. defense anymore. So he's doing some... He's doing a lot of work on that end. Right. So. Um, Ryan Pulak, who's a different person than to Adam Pellick, to be clear. They both play for, for the Islanders. But Do we know that for sure? <laughs> you know, no one's ever seen them <laughs> in the same place at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, the, I mentioned Pellick off the top. Pulak's also good. Uh, Uyghur, I mentioned earlier, as, um, you know, with respect to kind of uh, how how the regression models might be treating Barkov's play driving this year. But, you know, people were, were kind of high on Uyghur even last offseason, said this guy could be, you know, quite decent. Um, and, you know, the pairing with him and Ekblad at the start of the year were was, I think, quite strong and has been, you know, Uyghur's has seemed to maintain his strong play despite Ekblad's injury, which is a real shame because Ekblad has quietly turned into a very, very good defenseman himself, by the way. Oh, yeah, he's, he's excellent. If Ekblad had stayed healthy, I think we would be talking about him now in this conversation. Um, 
And it's interesting that without him, Uyghur has still held up his results. Again, part of the reason I, I said in our throwaway thing at the beginning that I want to give the Jack Adams to Joel Quenville is because A, I know he's a good coach, and B, players for them who I thought were good, but maybe not this good, keep doing really well. And so that's Uyghur in the absence of Ekblad. That's for Hagee, who is admittedly riding shotgun to Barkov. But it is uh, it is interesting to see Uyghur hold up even without the player you would have thought was carrying him. It's done more than just hold up, too. Like, the last few games especially, playing with Gustav Forsling, who... Um, it's like you a know, sixth defenseman. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't Forsling think Gustav Forsling's is... carrying the pairing. No, no. <laughs> I, the one thing... Gustav Forsling's claim to fame for me is that... Um, that World Juniors that was in Toronto where Nylander was there, Forsling picked up a ton of power play points uh, during that World Juniors. That's basically all, all I remember him for. Honestly, he, that's he, that's un, that's more things than I could have told you about Gustav Forsling. So you got me covered there. So, but yeah, like the last few games, they've just absolutely annihilated their opponents. You know, Forsling and Uyghur. And it's like, okay, well, you know that that's a thing. Yeah, how about that, eh? And there, it's sort of. And I think that this will come up whenever we do get to an offseason and we do our survey of all the other teams. But one of the teams I think we might have missed the mark on a little bit is Florida. And we oh, said, absolutely. yeah, maybe more than any other team uh, hmm. that I can think of off the top of my head. Because we were saying, OK, they're probably going to plateau as this mediocre team. And instead, they've stepped forward. Some of that was they got actual good goaltending, still not from Bobrovsky, but They've also just played really well, including combinations of players that I wouldn't have expected a lot from. Anyway, that's a bit far afield, but it is very interesting to see. I think in the Central, we had Tampa and Carolina. It's like, okay, these are the best teams. Then we're like, oh, that's a big pile of meh. And Mm -hmm. Florida has just completely separated themselves from the meh. And, you know, they're, they're not skating by. Like, their goal differential isn't as good as Tampa's or Carolina's, but it's they don't look like a fake team. No, they belong there, and... They certainly aren't no-hopers in the first series against... Well, I mean, it looks like it's going to be Tampa and Florida round one, but we'll see. Which is going to be a fun series. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, you really, that's, a, that's a division where you really want to get the first seed. Yeah. And I still like Tampa to come out of that, but like the, they won't have the easiest time. Now, granted, I don't think Tampa's in the business of taking first-round series lightly at this point. Had some bad experiences. But, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're really interesting. Uh, even despite the loss of Ekblad, who I would have considered probably the third most important player uh, behind Barkov and Huberdeau. So, yeah. Anyway, it is an, an interesting class of defensemen, and I think the question of what you do with the Colorado guys is fascinating. Like, how do you weigh three players, all with the same team, who are all putting up great results. And, and, you know, the fact that I keep thinking of that old, you know, it's a really old Beatles joke, but someone asks, is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And John Lennon says, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. I keep thinking, is he even the best defenseman on the abs about all of these guys? But the result is, is that they clearly have a great team that's getting great results. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can't. It really, it's really hard to overstate um, how good the Avs have been as like a you know, kind of just carrying play this year. They uh, they lead the league in 5v5 goals for percentage. They have a below average save percentage. That's hard to do. Like, that's <laughs> really hard to do. Like They've been so dominant that even with, you know, below average goaltending, they've been the best team in the league at 5-on-5. Five five. That's wild to contemplate. And, and so it says, you know, if they can get competent goaltending... I think that they're probably the the favorite to win the cup. Yeah, I mean, the West, by the way, is another division where you really want to get the first seed. Mm-hmm. And Vegas has come on really strong. Vegas is another very good team, by the way. They're not bad by any means. They're, they're you know, a standard Vegas team. They're really strong. And Fleury's, who we'll talk about soon, I suppose, mm-hmm. has, has helped propel them to, you know, actually being ahead of the Avs right now on points percentage. Yeah, I, I mean, that's crazy. And they have, a you know, a very balanced attack. Lots of good players. Maybe less raw star, star power than you would expect, obviously. We probably should have mentioned Mark Stone for for the Selkie. I think he, he he's had another typical Mark Stone year. But did we not implicitly mention him when we said that wingers don't ever win this award and then we just didn't yeah. talk about him? 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to cover our forgetting about him as like some sort of <laughs> higher intellectual point. Yeah, he's not going to win it, but he's just consistently awesome. And again, his defensive results have been so good for so long that I don't think that there's a lot of doubt that he's doing it. He's great. As a side note, it really is crazy the amount of talent that's gone out of Ottawa recently. Oh my God. Like when you think about who they had and, and you know, it, maybe they aren't, they weren't that great at center, but they had uh, one of the best wingers on the planet, probably the best offensive defenseman on the planet at the time. Um, a premier sniper in Mike Hoffman. And then going back even a little bit, they gave up on uh, Mika Zibanejad too early. Yeah, for uh, for Derek Broussard, Derek Broussard, right? Oof. Yeah. Ooh, man. <laughs> uh, days of our sins. But uh, yeah, it, it is wild to contemplate. And uh, it, it's, it's going to be an interesting playoff run for sure because there are a lot of teams that are really coming into their own right now. Um, mm. a, a little bit less of the same old, same old maybe. And... Uh, yeah, so, so that'll be fun. Anyway, bringing it back to the Norris, I want to give it to Dougie Hamilton. And I will acknowledge now that we're this far in, I kind of want some people to get mad about it. Because <laughs> it's very stupid how they got mad at him for just being kind of a little bit odd and nerdy. So give him a trophy, because I identify with odd and nerdy people. Yeah. The Vesna. Uh, <laughs> okay, so... We had a... To be honest, my, my process for the Vesna, because I have no ability to... I mean, I don't have a great ability to analyze players generally, mm. but I have zero ability to analyze goalies, so my, my list more or less begins and ends at going to Evolving Hockey and sorting by GSAX. Pretty much. Yeah, and we had the, the same three names. Now, the good news is, this is one of those years where I think the stats make it kind of easy, because Andre Vasilevsky has been killing it mm-hmm. for most of the year. Um, so my ballot was Vasilevsky first, Hellebuck, who you will know from Winnipeg second, and Marc-Andre Fleury third. And I had, uh, Fleury and Hellebuck reversed. I did that before, kind of the Jets' recent slide, but that's also helped matters, I suppose, because Hellebuck's performance has probably been a bit worse in the last few games. Yeah, you have a real case, to be honest, to put it the way you did over the way I did it. The only thing is, is that I give Hellebuck a lot of credit because I believe in my heart that the Jets are a bad hockey team. And I don't believe that of Tampa or Vegas, but I still find myself thinking he's really holding that team in it insofar as it ever is in it. And now that he's struggling a little bit, they suck. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, this this gets into like a part of the awards that I don't think we ever really actually consider. But when you think about where the Jets are on the win curve, you replace them with a, a league average goalie, they go from in the playoffs to out of the playoffs. Yeah, and yeah. the Vesna right. is not the heart, but still, if you ever think about value to your team, the Jets need him bad. Um, actually, though, I wanted to spin my ignorance into a rant, so I did notes on this, believe it or not. Not mm-hmm. very good, but I just wanted to say... Goaltending analysis in the public sphere is kind of bad for the most part. Because in doing this, obviously I haven't seen that much of other teams all around the league. I have a day job. I can't just randomly watch what the Anaheim Ducks are doing on a Tuesday all the time. And so I, I read what other people say about them. I look at clips. I look at analysis. I try to learn stuff. And that's not that hard to do with players. That's really fucking difficult with goalies because the analysis of goalies is they are tall. And everyone gets called tall now because the standard height for goalies now is like 6'3". So everyone's just sort of still grading them on the curve of like a normal man. Whereas we probably should recognize now that they're all big. And it's just a question of how big. But also, people kind of talk vaguely about things like the ability to fight through traffic or puck tracking. That seems important. Don't get me wrong, that's a real skill and it's relevant. But it seems like the kind of stuff that you can just sort of back-analyze based off, did the puck go in? If they saved it, they were tracking the puck well because they stopped it. If they didn't, they can't have been tracking it that well because it went past them. And so that's the quality of a lot of the analysis. I'm not saying there aren't people who can do good goalie analysis, but there aren't a ton of them. And because I think a lot of people who played hockey played as position players, 
skaters, they don't know how to evaluate it. This is something that I struggle with. Sometimes I see people who are talking about goalies, and I don't know if they're bullshitting me or what. Mm -hmm. And I really wish there were more good goalie analysis in the mainstream. People who could just coherently talk about what goalies are doing, not just in the way of, did he make the save or not? But a way that actually learns something about technique. You know, I've seen stuff occasionally about vertical horizontal, you know, the positioning of the legs against the post. And that's starting to filter into the conversation a little bit more. I'm hoping that'll improve with time. But when we bring it back around, we did the Vesna analysis basically based on goals above expected, goals saved above expected. And right now that's kind of all we can do. I think that's all anyone can do voting on this award because it's just really hard to get good analysis. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is analyzing goalies is very difficult even from a qualitative perspective because it's so different to the rest of hockey. You really need subject matter experts and, you know, often it's, you know, it's one of those situations where how would I know what a subject matter expert in goaltending looks like? Because they could just say anything and I wouldn't know the difference. Right. And, you know, we, we have the occasional ex-goalie who shows up on broadcast, but I can't even remember any of them saying that much that was that relevant. And, you know, most hockey analysis in a lot of intermissions and stuff is still, well, they just got to gut it out and grit, find a way to compete. And I'm just not seeing that level of 110% effort. I mean, that seems beyond useless with goaltending. Like, what does that tell me? Mm. You can't even see if he's skating fast. So <laughs> it, it is um, a struggle. So, you know, I think the people who listen to this podcast know uh, painfully well that we don't always have the right answers. We often do not. We're wrong a lot. But I also, I, like, I don't want to bullshit anybody. And so I just figured I'd share with some of the difficulties I have with goalies because I do try and research stuff and look stuff up and make notes and all that stuff with goalies. I'll be honest. I read it a little bit and I came back around to goal saved above expected. So that's what my, my ballot reflects, except I gave a, bo a bonus to Connor Hellebuck because I think his team sucks. The end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's uh, finish up with the Cowder. I don't really have anything to add to the Vesna. Yeah. I probably ran it for solid three minutes. I hate goalies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Do you want to go first with the Calder? Sure. I My hot take, I have Jason Robertson, brother of Nick, which only slightly factored into my decision, um, <laughs> of the Dallas Stars as number one. I have Kirill Kaprizov uh, of the Minnesota Wild as number two, and Alex Nedeljkovic of the Carolina Hurricanes, a goaltender, at number three. Yes, that's bold. So I had, surprise, a one and two backwards, but the same three names. I had Kaprizov first and Robertson second. Uh, do you want to lead on this one? I've talked enough for a bit. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think with Robertson, the thing I kind of like about him relative to Kaprizov, and it, it's, again, it, it's close. Um, Robertson has done more at 5-on-5. Five five, mm -hmm. Right? Robertson has been very, very good at 5-on-5. Five five. He plays with uh, Rupi Hints, who is a good player when healthy, but he's been, like, hurt a lot this year. Um, I... Robertson has kind of... He started off basically as a fourth liner this year. Third, fourth liner. He's immediately rocketed up to playing legit real minutes, which matters to me. That To me, that says his coaches really, really like him. Obviously, Kaprizov came in doing that. Um, and then, you know, we're going to get into the annoying age discussion here. And I don't believe that voters should be in the business of saying, oh, that guy's not a real rookie or whatever. If he's a rookie by the NHL's rules, you consider him for the award. But in a very, very close contest, I would give the award to the younger player mm. uh, because what they're doing is more impressive. And I think this is a close contest, and as a result, I'm, I'm, going, with, um, I'm, I'm going with Robertson. One other thing I'll say, uh, a lot of... You know, there, there are some players who, for whom a lot of value when you look at their GAR, for example, goals above replacement, is tied up in drawing penalties. And that's an actual skill. You know, Connor McDavid has always draws a lot more penalties than he takes. Same with Nick Eaters. With how there's been a lot of discussion this year about, you know, how penalties are not really random among teams. There's there's a clear pattern of kind of makeup calls and um, balancing penalties in, across teams. I do think we have to acknowledge that a player who draws a lot of penalties 
um, is certainly very useful, but maybe not as useful as we would have naively thought, because they, yes, they get, you get the two-minute power play, but now, going forward, your team is more likely to get a penalty on you. So that gives away some of the advantage you just gave back, which is no fault of the players. We shouldn't credit them as much. Yeah, because it's not that valuable if there's going to be a makeup call going the other way because you drew a penalty, or if it becomes more likely that there's going to be a makeup call going against you. Right, and I believe when I looked at this, I believe really the distance... Kaprizov had a higher goals of replacement than, than Robertson, but the distance was like mostly down to their penalty drawing. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's like, okay, you know, I'm not... One of them isn't blowing the other out at, you know, the actual kind of playing hockey. Yes. So, yeah, my, my... That's why I... That's part of what made me feel more comfortable going with Robertson, who, again, has really, really good on-ice numbers, which are much better than uh, Kaprizov's, who, who's been kind of um, out-shooting his defensive frailties. Right. So, first of all, I have some feelings about whether the Calder eligibility age is too high. I think it is. I would rather have it be lower. But, as you said, it's not fair for me to vote for this award based on what I think the award ought to be. I'm going to try to vote somewhat based on what it is. And so, Kaprizov and Robertson are both eligible. And I give the narrow edge to Kaprizov. There's a bit of eye test going on here. And... I'll fully admit it. So I, I guess it's worth talking about what did I see when I watched Kaprizov a little bit. First of all, the thing about Kaprizov that maybe stands out is he's listed at 5'9 and 201 pounds. So he's not tall, but he is solid. He's got a low center of gravity and he's really hard to knock off the puck. And granted, hockey player heights and weights are a tissue of lies at the best of times. But when you watch him, you believe it because under pressure, he just keeps operating. It's staggering how many of his highlights just show a defender, you know, cross-checking him, trying to stick-check him, trying to body-check him, uh, getting all up in his kitchen, and he just keeps going. He doesn't lose the puck. He doesn't even really seem that bothered at times. He makes the pass or the play that the Wild need him to make, and often it ends up in a goal. And it's really impressive, just that kind of unflappability, especially from a player who's a little bit smaller, at least in the vertical dimension. I will be honest, that dynamism appeals to me a lot. It just makes me think he's the straw that's stirring the drink offensively for the Wild. And partially this is because it's the Wild. How many good offensive players have ever played for the Wild? The answer is zero. So... No, I'm kidding. That's not fair to Marion Gabrick and Eric Stahl, but you get the point. I do really find myself impressed with his ability to make things happen in a positive way. And so I'm giving him a bonus above his on-ice stats, which, as you've said, aren't as dazzling as maybe you would think from his highlight reel. Robertson seems to me like a good all-around player, for the record. Yeah, and yeah. I should I should say, I was a little unfair to Kaprizov in saying that, like, He's defensively frail. He's not really especially defensively frail so much as he he doesn't get shots from like... It's really his offense, his on-ice offense that looks worse than his on-ice defense because mm-hmm. he is, you know, you can take um, you can take the man out of the wild, but you can't take the wild out of the man. Well, actually, that doesn't really work because he is on the wild. Um, but oh, we're getting there. You know, he is, he is you know, very playing to type with, with the wild where he doesn't get ready to the front of the net, but he's so dynamic that it doesn't much matter, and he's, out sc- he's scoring from bad positions anyways. Mm-hmm. Part of... Uh, now, I guess we don't know how well this is going to translate going forward. Right. But two things. One, Kaprizov has a very, very long history of doing quite well in the KHL, which means something, mm-hmm. being a very skilled player there. And two, you know, this award isn't about who's going to have the best career. Yes, as much as anything, this is a one-season award. By definition, yes. it has to be. And so... I do give him credit for that. Now, Robertson is a good all-around player. It's impressive. There's no discounting it. It it, it is. And I think this is kind of just a bit towards my bias of really liking kind of five-on-five play drivers. Yeah. And Uh, that's a good thing to like, to be honest, mm because they're good to have. Um, When I watched him a little bit, what struck me was his opportunism. Like, he would just seem to jump on chances or get the shot off quickly or just sort of dart to the right place. By the way, he's a lot bigger than his brother. Um, 
But yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think people, Leafs fans, will naturally think, okay, yeah, Nick, Nick Robertson, Jason Robertson, they're brothers. They probably have similar statures. No, Jason Robertson's big. He's six two. He, yeah, they, one of those brothers got most of the size. I'm afraid. Tough world. Well, I, I mean, uh, I, I am not a medical expert, but the, Robertson was born, you know, severely premature, right? Right. Nick Robertson, sorry. Yeah. So maybe that was a factor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Jason Robertson, the elder. His ability to just jump on a play and fire a shot off at the right moment really stands out to me. And a lot of scouting reports on him talked about him as being maybe not the most impressive in terms of speed and like really dazzling skill, but a smart player. Um, Already some people are saying like he's probably a better all-around player. That might be true. I could believe that anyway than Kaprizov. But I do find myself thinking it's a bit more complimentary. Now, he's playing with Rupe Hintz, who, as you said, good, probably is not necessarily carrying anybody, but he's also playing with Joe Pavelski, who... Yeah, e- who is very yeah, good. Yeah, even at the age of a billion, which he now is. He's <laughs> Joe Pavelski has had sneakily one of the best old man seasons in a while. Yeah, uh, he's another guy who you could probably put in the conversation for the Selkie, because he, he's had just a nuts defensive impact this year. Mm-hmm. And, like, he's just a, a really fine player. Yeah. Um, but the result is, is that, you know, they found a good combination. But I do find myself seeing Robertson kind of taking advantage of what's happening with the other guys. Whereas everything Kaprizov does, it seemed to me like Kaprizov was the guy doing it. Like, he was the yeah. prime mover. Kaprizov is much more of a creator yeah. in that sense. And, and so I'm giving him credit for that. This is eye testy, 100%. And I'm using it to break a tie between two players with very strong statistical seasons as rookies. Yeah. One, one thing I'll say, you look at, you know, Jason Robertson's history and you're like, how did this guy go in the second round? How did he make it to like, he was picked, I mean, high second round, 39th overall. But he was a 6'2 kid, 6'2 or 6'3 kid from the OHL who scored 40 goals and had 81 points in like 68 games in his draft year. You would think that would get you a long way. Normally the guys who fall yeah. are like 5'8". Like they're the, the Alex de Brinkouts of the world. Now he's not blazing. Um, and maybe they thought, you know, his lack of obvious flashy skill wasn't going to go that far. But it, like at a certain point, it's like, I would like the player who scores the goals, please. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, this, this, is, this is one of those scouting cliches, right? But you, you often say it when it's a player who doesn't seem to have any standout skill, but just always does well. It's just he knows how to play the fucking game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, Luke Robitaille was, was that player, it, it seemed. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes players are just good at hockey. You know who uh, strikes me a lot in that way? And obviously, John Tavares has other skills. But he just does a lot of things really well. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and it's been much remarked on. He's never been that fast. But he just does a lot of things at a really high level. I think Jason Robertson is going to have a nice NHL career. As a guy who does a lot of things intelligently. He seems like a, just a smart player. I I would certainly... Like, again, I think that there's a real case to say, no, I want to give it to Robertson. And I think Kaprizov is benefiting because he's been so touted. You know, he's been anticipated coming over from the KHL for years. He's been christened as the guy who was going to win the Selkie since early in this season. And Robertson has only now made it a real race in the last couple right. of months. And so that's probably going to help Kaprizov. Um, so I do want to be clear, like this is a real competition and you can argue it either way, but I- I'm giving Kaprizov the edge just based on dynamism. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then um, Nidalkovic, I mean, everything we said about goalie still applies, but he's a goalie and he looks good by the metrics that we use. So good for him. Yeah, good job. Keep doing whatever it is you are doing or not doing. I don't understand you. Um, yeah, so just, I wanted to touch on the age eligibility question. And it comes down to what do we want the Calder to be for? And more than one person can answer this in one way. But like, obviously, we don't just want it to be the best first year player. Because we have an age limit on it. It's you can't be 26 by September 15th of the year you're supposedly eligible. The question is, is that age limit good enough? Are we good saying, yeah, anyone who's 25 or under can win this award? Or should it be someone younger? And it's worth noting, Kaprizov just turned 24, and Robertson is 21. And so, 
if you ask me who's going to have the better career going forward, I think that's an open question because there's an age gap there. Um, personally speaking, I want to see ascendant players when they still have a lot of room to grow. I want the Calder to kind of put a flag and say, these are the names that are going to get better and are going to be exciting going forward. And I'm okay with it showing me less of players who are already contending for major awards. And so I would probably bump the age down to about 22 or younger. In which case, by the way, I would be invalidating my own ballot. I would take Kaprizov out of the running and give it to Robertson. But I'm going based on the rules as they are. This is kind of a nebulous thing, but it comes up a lot and it's coming up again. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, honestly, no. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> this might be something that I just care about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I see the argument, but I'm also... I'm also fine with it just being, you know, the best rookie and it's like a quirk of the system that sometimes you get a Panarin or a Kaprizov who are, who they, they come in and they're basically stars already. Yeah. And to be, you know. Right. And yeah. Well, just when, when a player turns out to be really, really good, everyone's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, like Panarin winning the Calder, it was like, well, he turned out to be one of the best players in the world. So that makes yeah. sense. It, yeah. It works out better in that case than if you, I mean... Have there been really bad Calder winners at some point? I'm trying to remember. Uh, okay, let me double check and make sure. Oh, Tyler Myers. Which, <laughs> yeah, that was that was awkward. But I think he actually genuinely just had a really good year, and then he just never really developed beyond that. Um, th- th- honestly, the you have to go back to Tyler Myers to get one who is bad. Like here are the last Calder winners: um, Kale McCarr, Adias Pettersson, Barzal, Matthews, Panarin, Ekblad, McKinnon, Huberto, Landeskog, Skinner, then Myers. Yeah, and then. And then Steve Mason, which, yeah, that, that hasn't looked great. What you... And then back then, you, when you go past that, you get Kane, Malkin, and Ovechkin. Yeah. And then Andrew Raycroft. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Again. No goal. Nobody Maybe wants to know what to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a friend. I was talking to him in, in prep for this. And he said, you know, we should give goalies m- more credit maybe because it's really hard to come in as a kid. Establish yourself as a starting goalie face the music every night, you know, it's it's a really high-pressure position, whereas you can be kind of hidden by good players uh, as a rookie. You know, you know, it's easier to wade into the pool a little bit. Right. Um, this is just an interesting spin on it. On the other hand, again, we have no capacity to evaluate goalies whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, yeah, the bottom line is Kaprizov and Robertson, I think, are both cool and worthy winners of this award. I expect to go to Kaprizov, but... It's fine either way. Yeah, that, I think that's fair. Um, okay, so I think that's everything we wanted to discuss. Anything you want to quickly tack on before we end? No, I'm good. Great. So thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday, uh, henceforth, with our regularly scheduled episodes. See you then.